It's time for the Hezzy Jimbo Podcast, brought to you by the boys from Beyond the Arc. We'll talk the latest NBA news and provide our own in-depth analysis. The Hezzy Jimbo Podcast, only real ballers know. Hello and welcome to the Hezzy Jimbo Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Arnold, and I'm here with my co-host, Min Dow. How are you today, Min? Yeah, not too bad, Trent. How about yourself? Yeah, good. So we're recording this one on a Saturday morning, and there's been a little bit of news actually overnight. Uh, the first one, Derek Rose has, according to Adrian Wojnarowski, so it's actually interesting to see that he beat Shams to this story today, which is a win for Woj. Oh, here we go. Here we go. But uh, yeah, according to his sources, Derek Rose has stepped away from the team and he's evaluating his future in basketball. Rose is, this is quoted, tired of being hurt and it's taking a toll on him mentally. Uh, looking back on Rose's career, the youngest MVP in history, he's now 29 and obviously he's been dealing with issues ever since he did his ACL that first time in 2012. How do you feel for Derek Rose right now? Look, it feels as if Derek Rose is a little bit... um. He's a little bit mentally weak after the his knee injuries, which was what I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. So it's, it, look, it's been a while since the initial incident happened, and he's sort of just been injury prone since. And I think that look, if Derek Rose wants to play basketball, he shouldn't have signed a contract this year. And it, he's had a lot of rumors around him about that, whether he he truly wants to play the game still. You know, if he wants, he's been quoted saying, "Oh, he wants to be able to, you know, to be able to walk and." be healthy for his kids and his grandkids down the road. So, it's look, it's very interesting. But, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be harsh, but I'm under the impression that Derek Rose is sort of the guy that kind of doesn't have much going on upstairs. Yeah, on that point, Chris Vernon also had a pretty negative opinion of him as well. He obviously covers Memphis sports, is the host of the Ringer podcast for anyone that doesn't know. And he's been in Memphis for a few years now. And he said even when uh, Rose was in college, there were a lot of concerns there that he didn't really look after himself. Like he's never been considered to be a disciplined guy, didn't look after his body. Apparently, it was well known that he had sort of a liking for cheeseburgers and <laughs> yeah, never really been the guy that really cares about things like nutrition. And it's probably one of those reasons why he's never really had success with his rehab. That that obviously takes a lot of discipline, takes a lot of hard work, takes a lot of mental focus. And yeah, it does seem that Derek Rose, I guess, a little, he's a little bit lacking in those areas. You would say. I mean, you obviously don't wish the worst for a guy like that, but there are sort of rumours that do always seem to surface that say that he does have an issue with sort of treating his body right. And you just got to think that that's got to be a large factor to do with it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that Derek Rose in the past, when he was in college, he had, um, he had some academic issues in Memphis. I think that sort of translates to, you know, his, his thought process and also how he is today. As you were saying, he doesn't really look after himself. I, I don't know. The dots kind of connect when it comes to Derek Rose now. Yeah, it does feel a little bit rough to uh, bash a guy who could be on the verge of ending his NBA career due to a series of injuries and you know mental issues. But do wish him the best. Hope that he gets back. I have some friends that are big fans of Derek Rose and would love to see him play again. So I do hope he comes back. But yeah, the mental focus and mental intensity has to be there for anyone to come back from injuries like this. And like he said himself, don't want to sacrifice your entire life because you're drained and worried about basketball. So hopefully he just does what's best for him. Well, look, throughout his 10-season NBA career so far, he's made about $117 million pre-tax. Look, if, even if you take away half of that for um, income tax and managers and agent fees, all that sort of stuff, look, he's still making close to $60 million throughout his whole career. That's a lot of money that, that could definitely set up him and his kids for the rest of his life. Yeah, hopefully he can just go ahead, even if he does leave the game of basketball, hopefully he goes ahead and makes something of his life with that money. But yeah, moving away from Derek Rose now, 
Bit of a tough topic to start on, but there is more news out of Cleveland. The Cleveland Cavaliers would reportedly consider a trade involving Tristan Thompson and DeAndre Jordan. Rumours are that that would include the Nets pick, potentially, or just one of the Cleveland Cavaliers' own first-round picks. How do you see a trade between those two teams going? Which side do you think it benefits more? If the Cavaliers were able to get a room protector like DeAndre Jordan, like the upgrade between him and Thompson is quite large. But look, at the same time, DJ is he's a player option next year, so he could easily opt out, whereas Thompson is two guaranteed years after this um, NBA season. So you take a little bit of a risk, especially um, the uncertainty around LeBron. Um, so at the end of this season, you could easily have Jordan and LeBron move if you do that deal. So I'd be very cautious as to what you give up. Uh, in terms of the assets, you'd, look, the contracts don't quite fit. You probably need you know, a salary filler with Thompson to match with Jordan, and you're obviously a pick. But I probably wouldn't be throwing that in Brooklyn Nets pick if I was um, Cleveland. Yeah, definitely not. But you've got LeBron potentially leaving, his deal's ending. You've got uh, Isaiah Thomas, who's up at the end of the season as well, potentially moving on from Thompson and his big contract. The Cavs might actually see that as a positive. If LeBron does bolt, you've then got uh, moved away from Tristan Thompson, who's one of your bigger salaries. You've got DeAndre Jordan and Isaiah Thomas, who could all just leave. And then all of a sudden, it does open things up for that Cavaliers rebuild. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. No, I, I agree with that. And then, you know, if you have if you have LeBron around, DJ, it's more likely to stay. But if LeBron leaves and, you know, you have cap relief. So it kind of is a win-win. It's just I would not be giving them the Nets pick at all. You'd be giving up a, an even and unprotected Cleveland pick, to be honest, um, next year. Like, that's the, the, the best you'd be giving up in, in this case. I think one of the things you mentioned that the salary didn't quite fit I mean, potentially, I'm not sure how it works. The Cavs do seem to have a lot of trade exceptions, so I'm, I'm sure that some sort of exception could be thrown in there to maybe match the salaries. I'm pretty sure you can't, um, you can't, sorry, you can't repackage trade exceptions um, with another player to um, make the salary. It's got to be like a direct... Okay, yep. Yeah, so for example, that, um, that Dunleavy $4.8 million trade exception, you have to take someone on, like pretty much trade exception for a player and a pick or something. Well, that makes sense. Glad to see that you're not only teaching me some things about the salary cap, but teaching our listeners as well. (laughs) There's been plenty of more news that we wanted to discuss. A little bit different than normal for us, but yeah, we've had a recent one as well with uh, Patrick Beverly, who is now out for the season. Apparently had a microfracture knee surgery. Apparently the surgery repairs the microfracture and meniscus injury in his right knee. So, yeah, again, going to miss the entire season, which isn't great for the Clippers, who are actually starting to fall apart with plenty of injuries, not only to him, but Milos Teodosic and also Danilo Gallinari. Obviously, one of the reasons why DeAndre Jordan is being shopped is because the Clippers are starting to come apart like that. So, sad for Beverly, but how do you feel the Clippers are going to stand up now without that guard depth? I mean, that means big role continuing on for the rest of the season for Austin Rivers, who has always been a bit of a laughing stock around NBA circles. <laughs> not, not the greatest player, but he is a solid player, but he's more so solid as a fourth guard as opposed to being your number one or two guard contributor there. Look, it might be Doc Rivers' his wet dream to have his son be their yeah. starting point guard now. But um, look, yeah, it's, as you were saying, it's, he's probably best served as their third or fourth guard. And look, Beverly's, Beverly's injuries, as you were saying, to the, um, it's to the meniscus, which is the... Um, the tissue that that holds the pretty much in between the knee bones, and I think that like that sort of injuries can be tough because you know if you look in the past, guys like Brandon Roy, they've pretty much lost most of their meniscus and it was just bone on bone towards the end of their career. So it's it's one of those injuries where it's it's um, it'll be tough to recover from, and apparently it's meant to um, be a recovery time of about nine months. So 
whatever the Clippers do, you know, you put Austin Rivers back on the line. I think Ted Dosich is out uh, indefinitely. Whatever they do, they're going to have to try to patch guys together. And obviously, the Clippers have been known to lose guys and replace them with very marginal players. So it'll be interesting because the Clippers could really go either way here because they've they brought back Blake Griffin, and you think that would be to contend if it's on a five-year, $100-odd million deal. But at the same time, if you're shopping DJ, you really could go the opposite direction and then try to get something for Griffin, you reckon? Yeah, well, I think that that's a logical way to look at it. You've got Griffin there who's locked in. Someone might bite on that. You've got DJ who's expiring, so I suppose that's more of an intriguing trade asset for teams because they can keep cap flexibility, like we said. But yeah, for the Clippers, I think they obviously realise that they're probably out of the playoff hunt now so they're shopping DJ you'd think they're going to have to look to move other guys you'd even think Danilo Gallinari once he's healthy other teams might be interested in him that are on contenders Blake Griffin's another guy I mean Doc Rivers has left Boston because he didn't want to be part of a rebuild but it really seems that that's where the Clippers are going ahead now and it's probably the best situation for them to go to because really some of the injuries that they've dealt with they're not going to compete this season they're kind of in a bit of a terrible situation going forward without any picks without too many young prospects so they really need to do a lot people have been saying for years they should blow it up and I think it's pretty much come time now that they should do that and probably six months too late after signing Blake Griffin to a massive contract yeah look they've they've lost nine of their past 10 games they're 6-11 they're third last in the west behind teams like the Lakers the slipping Jazz and Grizzlies and also the Phoenix Suns so they're really not doing great uh, look, I've heard some mild Blake Griffin trade rumors around the circles. Um, one of them being involves my team. It's pretty much a it'd be centered around McCollum and Griffin. What would you think about that if that was a potential deal? I mean, if I'm the Blazers, I probably wouldn't trade Griffin for McCollum. Not not only financial situation considered, but longevity and four years down the line, three four years down the line, I still think McCollum will be the better player. So. Personally, I'd prefer to keep McCollum up. If you could maybe get other assets alongside of Blake Griffin, like, you know, maybe you get Austin Rivers, but straight up for Blake and CJ, I'd, I don't think I'd trade CJ for Blake straight up. So Fair enough. What about you? Would, you? would you be interested in that? Do you think that would make your team a contender or do you think it's not quite enough? There's been sources around me that have confirmed that I'm not sold on the whole CJ Dame backcourt for long term just because... Look, they've been better defensively this year, but I think that long-term, if you could really try to balance the team out more in terms of, you know, you've got you've got the anchor inside, you've got that scoring guy in Lillard, and, you know, you sort of need someone on that wing 3-4 position to really, you know, be a playmaker and also just be another star, which was, was look, that's where I really wanted a guy like Paul George because he would have been perfect. But, look, I think the balance of the team might be better. But at the same time, I would be pretty cautious to be giving up CJ Strata for Blake Griffin. But I'm sure there would be other pieces involved if a deal would happen. I must admit, historically, I have agreed with you on that with the CJ and Dame backcourt. But I feel like you might have made me a believer now. I believe in the I believe in the Portland defensive potential with those two after such a strong start to the season. Uh, like I said, you've you've been harping on about their defensive performances this year, so I've paid a bit of a closer attention and. The effort and the intensity that those two guys have been showing has just been a lot better. And I think that if they do bring it on the level that they have been bringing it on recently, then they can compete on a high enough level defensively as long as, like you said, they can grab some of those wing guys. And imagine if they were to grab a Paul George at some stage in his free agency campaigns. That would just be great for them because he would be the perfect fit 
Yeah, look, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's not like the Portland Portland have one of the top three uh, salaries in the league or anything. Yeah, it's not like we're really. So yeah, you, you probably aren't entering the tra- free agency market there for Paul George, but I mean, you can work on some sort of deal, I'm sure. Well, you did have a lot of tradable assets at one stage. Not sure how it's stacking up quite now after sort of the Evan Turner and Myers Leonard deals, but still, guys like Aminu and Harkless are on pretty valuable contracts. Not sure when they expire myself, but... Hey, leave, uh, leave Myers Leonard out of this, all right? He's done nothing wrong to you. <laughs> no, he hasn't. He hasn't. He hasn't done a lot right either, though, sadly. <laughs> that's, that's very true. <laughs> so another bit of injury news that we have is Paul Millsap. We wanted to touch on him just quickly and talk about where that would leave the Denver Nuggets. They're sixth in the Western Conference right now, sitting at 10-8. and eight, And with their big off-season acquisition now out of the lineup, for I think it's three months with a left wrist injury. How do you feel that impacts on their playoff chances? They were kind of just starting to get it together offensively with integrating Millsap there. They started off really strong defensively but have started to slip recently. You'd feel like with Millsap now going out, that'll continue to trend in the same direction. They might jump up offensively and get to a similar point where they were last season. But then, yeah, they'll probably slip down into the bottom 10 in defense. Do you think that the teams just outside of that playoff race right now, I think it's Memphis and OKC and, like you said, the slipping Utah Jazz and Los Angeles Clippers, will Denver be able to hold on to that playoff spot? This torn ligament to his wrist has really, first of all, it's messed up my fantasy team. Um, <laughs> and uh, secondly, that the West is kind of becoming a little bit clearer in terms of which teams are going to be contending for the playoff spots. Look, the Clippers have really slipped out. And look, they're seemingly going the other direction. The Grizzlies without Mike Conley have really shown their true colours. They've lost six straight. The Jazz without Gobert just clinging on. So you kind of have a clear top eight now at the moment with the Rockets, Warriors, Wolves, Spurs, Blazers, Nuggets, Pelicans, and OKC. So look, you know, if, if their offense continues to be at a top seven, eight mark and then their defense is hopefully they're going to have it at the top 20. I think at the moment it is 24th. Um, they should be um, they should be fine for a, a top eight seed, especially with the injuries uh, amongst the other potential playoff contenders. So, I would be looking for them to be still making the playoffs, but whether um, they're a more volatile team or not in terms of their defensive floor can be an issue. Because um, look, away from home, they've been a bit of a disaster this year. They're three and six, and I think that will probably continue, especially with their um, with the defensive ceiling being restricted. Yeah, I think you're right there. And Millsap for them is one of the guys that they have on the squad that's actually able to force turnovers. It's always been a pretty good steals and blocks guy. Potentially gives you three stocks a game. And yeah, the one of the issues with their defense last year, I believe, was that Denver just really didn't turn people over too often. So they didn't get enough stops, didn't lead to enough transition play. And Millsap was really helping with in that regard because he's a great defender and he obviously is good at forcing turnovers himself. I think in Atlanta they ran that high-pressure offense where he sort of trapped the ball, tried to get his hands in passing lanes and turn teams over. But Denver are going to have issues there. But on offense, they were struggling to integrate him into the system a little bit. It's kind of a yeah. guy who likes to play with his hands on the ball, doesn't really stretch the floor as much as you'd like or at least as much as Danilo Gallinari did last year. So they might actually find it a little bit easier now if they can put a bit of a spread floor out there. They might might play Juancho, Hernan Gomez more. I know Kenneth Fareed didn't even get any minutes last game, even though Millsap is out. So it looks like they're going to try. Yeah, it looks like they're going to try and stretch that floor a little bit, which could open things up for Gary Harris and Jamal Murray to come out and play the way they did last year, like lots of cuts, 
beating guys back door and then if not work out for spot up shots or let Jokic go to work against mismatches on the block where he's pretty solid so yeah hopefully the offense can uptick and keep them in the eight seed there yeah look the, the offense you know could be the same or better I think it's the defensive end is where it's going to be a bit of trouble they were I think they're top they're top six at the moment this season in generating um defensive turnovers for the opponents which is which is great yeah so look Millsap being gone will hurt that they were pretty much a mediocre defensive rebounding team. That might hurt a little bit as well with uh, Millsap. Yeah, know. especially yeah. if Reed doesn't play. But also, another thing is they've they held a lot of their opponents um, off the free throw line, and I think that's a lot to do with Millsap's you know his great lateral movement, his good pick and roll play, he's a bit of a leader on the defensive end as well. So defensively is where I'm more worried about the Denver Nuggets, and I think that if you want to be a very good Western Conference team, you have to be able to defend the ball, and I think that. You know, obviously, teams like the Rockets, the Warriors, um, and the Spurs have always been good defensive teams. Well, especially this season, anyway. They've been consistently good defensive teams. Yeah. And that's shown in their record. Look, the Spurs without Kawhi, and they're still sitting fourth in the West, 11-7. Unbelievable. It speaks, yeah, it, spe- it speaks to the, how hard they play on the defensive end. And um, I think that you need, really need to shore that end of the court if you want to go far. So we just sort of touched on whether or not the Denver Nuggets could hold on to their spot. And I think... One of the teams we've mentioned, obviously, is OKC, who I guess they, they just beat the Warriors, so they, they played really well against the Warriors, but until that point, they had been struggling a little bit. But if they can get it together the same way they did against the Warriors, they're obviously going to jump the Nuggets. But the question that we sort of had from them was, with all the early season issues and sort of integrating Paul George and Carmelo Anthony, do we feel like OKC are, have turned it around now with this win against the Warriors, or do we feel like they're actually going to continue to struggle and play inconsistently, trying to bring these three guys, ball-dominant guys, together? Look, it, it is tough because when you look at that Oklahoma City team, they really haven't been the greatest team to watch. They've been last in passes made per game and they're top in isolation plays per game. Around 13.5% of their plays are isolations. Look, if you, if you ask me, it's never a good recipe of success if you want team basketball, especially when you have two-and-a-half ball-dominant stars. I'm saying the half is Paul George. Yeah. I think that look if you if you want to be that good team you've got to be better than that and look they've had, their schedule has been pretty easy they played the sixth easy schedule in the league and it's really been behind their top three defense but their offense has been mediocre at best in the past five games it's been twelfth the whole season it's been fourteenth look if you have that much star power you really want to be you know be up in the, the upper echelon of the league in, in terms of that side of the ball and I think that I'm very interested to see if it can, it's sustainable or not, because I've, I've noticed a lot of the games they do win, it's just been their, their stars getting hot. Their big threes been shooting over 45%. They've just been efficient, and they've taken the same shot, shot selection. That's just resulted in better value. That's it. Their expected value of all those shots, have, for me, have just been, you know, they've been pretty mediocre. Like a, a Carmelo Anthony step back long two, not great. Russell Westbrook take, trying to take a floater from 14 feet out, really not that great. So I, I'm really interested as to how they make some adjustments in their um, how they generate shots in the future. Yeah, I never really worried about their defense because we know last year it was a, it was a really good defense. It was one of the top 10, I think, in the league. And it was actually their defense last season that powered them to the wins that they had. They had a pretty mediocre offense. I think it was around 18th or 19th. And the defense was just really strong. And then adding Paul George, who is one of the league's best defenders, and he's actually leading the league in steals right now, makes a massive difference. We've spoken about this before. One of the issues they do have with their offense is that they've just got too many guys who are using possessions at a below average rate. 
So Russell Westbrook is shooting some of the worst numbers of his career right now, only 40% from the field and 32% from three. And he's just not getting to the line as much. Last year, he got to the line 10 times a game. This year, it's only six times a game, and he's only shooting 72%, which is a career low for him. So you'd assume that those numbers will tick up eventually. But I think two of the things we've sort of noted with Russell Westbrook and, I guess, the Oklahoma City Thunder in general, were that they're just not getting the same sort of quality of easy looks they were last year. Last year, Russell Westbrook would grab the rebound. As we all know, he'd really force himself to get that defensive rebound. But then he'd grab the ball and he'd run it up the court as quickly as possible and slam it down people's throats. And this season, he's kind of been holding the offense up a little bit to get Paul George and get Carmelo Anthony touches. And their transition buckets have slowed down a lot. Last year, they were in the top five. And this year, they're around 10th, which, I mean, it's not a huge difference, but it does make a big difference in terms of points per possession scored. Getting those easier transition buckets for those guys would give a nice little uptick. And I think that's what the difference was against the Warriors. They forced 22 turnovers, which was really good. I mean, 22 turnovers, the Warriors are turnover prone, but if you put the pressure on them and force, force 22 turnovers, and the amount of points they scored off turnovers, I can't remember exactly what it was, but they kept saying it in the broadcast. Yeah, OKC now has this many points off of turnovers. So that was a huge factor for them, and that was one of the reasons why they were able to really show it to the league's best team that day. So, yeah, for them, like we've said before, they probably need to get the ball in the hands of guys like Adams, maybe a Brinus get Paul George some more touches and then have Russell Westbrook get a few of those more transition buckets like he did last year and then hopefully they can really fix that offensive efficiency and become top 10 team in both offense and defensive efficiency which is where they need to be to be a serious contender this year. I think that one thing as well is that um, you were saying that I think that Russell Westbrook needs to become a more of a secondary playmaker. Yeah. He needs to take a little bit of a step back a bit more a bit more of a general like a um, like Chris Paul John Wall of sorts where you sort of just step back and you're able to get others involved as opposed to just looking for your shot first and trying to be super aggressive. I actually think not quite exactly in that regard. What what he's doing wrong this time is that he's bringing the ball up the court and he's passing it to Carmelo Anthony or Paul George to be the primary creator. And then what is happening is if that doesn't result in a good shot, they're passing it back to Westbrook, who's then taking these bricks or really forced shots at the end of the shot clock. And I think we noted last time that Russell Westbrook's possessions towards the end of the shot clock have actually lifted this season, which you wouldn't think. But the problem that Westbrook really needs to fix is that I think he needs to be aggressive in looking for a shot early, and then he can kick it out afterwards. But at the moment, he's doing the opposite thing, which is kicking the ball to the guys early. They're being aggressive in looking for the shot, and then they're kicking it back to him as the shot clock dies, which is really hurting his efficiency. So I think he needs to sort of look to go out early and set guys up from his aggressiveness as opposed to being sort of like not really aggressive and just giving guys the ball to create from there. I think he needs to actually look to set guys up by creating offense himself, not only for himself though, but for other people. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's his, um, as you were saying before, his, his shot selection late and very late in the shot clock, which is pretty much was seven seconds or less total. Um, it's been up since last year. It's at, uh, it's at pretty much at a total 15% this year of his shots have come that late. Yeah, I think that's up for about nine or ten percent from last year. So, um, look, what I meant is that he needs to be more of a he needs to have more of the secondary playmaker mindset. Like in terms of not trying to jack up bad shots, trying to get others involved. You know, not for his statistics. It's yeah, crazy not, to, not just for not the assist. His, yeah, but actually to get others involved. Whereas he's generating potential assists, whether it's good looks for others, 
or you know even if you start on a turnover but he's but it's more of a you know a dump down pass instead of a bailout pass at the end of the quarter yeah he needs to be able to um, get others involved and be more of a leader on the team is what I meant instead of um, yeah. instead of him being, oh, yeah, I'm going to just do this for my assist and I'm just going to take bad shots whenever I feel like it. Because as you were saying, you talked about his stats before. You know, the big three, all of them are shooting below 44%. And you got have guys like Mello taking almost 17 shots for 20 points. Westbrook, 18 shots for 20 points as well. twenty Almost 21 points, sorry. Look, it's really not efficient and it's really showing their offense because so much of their offense finishes with the, that big three. And when they're finishing at a below rate like that, I know it definitely makes you sick. And I, I do agree with exactly what you've said there to finish. The problem with Westbrook's sort of creation right now is he passed the ball off more in a way of saying like, here you go, it's your turn or, you know, dump off pass at the end of the shot clock. But what he's not doing enough of is actually setting guys up in good situations for them to score. It's like, like we all kind of expected. It is a little bit more of a you go, I go sort of thing. As, yeah. a, as opposed to giving them, like creating some actual good looks. Mello on a complete spot up because Russell Westbrook's just attacked the paint and kicked it out on a dime to Mello in the corner. Those are the sort of looks they need to generate more of as opposed to just, like you said, they're the number one isolation team in the league. So they've just got to stop doing that my turn, your yeah. turn thing and actually work together to get some good shots. And they're a relatively high jump shooting team as well. They're about 13th in the league at the moment, free throw attempt rate, which is the number of free throw attempts per field goal attempt. And if you think about those three superstars, you really think they'd be getting to the line more, especially with how much of their offense funnels through them? Yeah, you would expect them to. But I think that also ties into that thing I've mentioned with Westbrook is just like not quite an, as much aggressiveness as we saw last year from him. Yeah, he needs to be more decisive going to the rack, but also making smart plays as well. Look, at some point, the hammer's got to fall down Billy Donovan because he's really, really been shitting the bed in the past two seasons, especially yeah. with how he's managed the minutes last season. Look at this. Holy, holy crap, you know. Victor Deep and Nuanta Sabonis, suddenly they're, what, they're really productive players in Indiana. It's almost as if, you know, as soon as they left Westbrook and Donovan, they got better. Look, there's a common denominator. It seems like Westbrook and Donovan have both really not helped the case in terms of whether it's Donovan's mismanagement of minutes and his poor um, coaching execution, or is it just Westbrook and his, you know, he, he likes them digits going up on his stat sheet. We'll move on from OKC because we just want to touch on one last bit of news. Even though it probably sounds like we've moved completely away from the news segment, we're kind of still in it. We're going to touch on one last bit of news and then we're just going to talk about the end of the Celtics win streak. So just wanted to talk about Michael Porter Jr. I know you're a big fan. He's uh, yeah, he's had some surgery to his lower back and he's going to miss the entire college season. Just wanted to, you're kind of the college ball draft aficionado here of the two of us. Just wanted to get your thoughts on what you think that means for his own draft stock and how it may affect the sort of top five to ten of the draft. Look, it's sad to say this because um, Michael Porter Jr. was the consensus top two prospect coming into the 2018 draft. And I think that with his spinal disc injury that he... Look, it aggravated about 100 seconds into his young Missouri career. And I think that, look, it's, it's going to hurt his draft stock because there's going to be a lot of red flags and questions come, um, come draft time especially if um, with a lanky guy like him, um, you know, did it was it something that he was holding out, he was trying to manage and it finally aggravated or was it something that just really only happened at that during that game only? So there'd be a lot of questions about um, his draft stock. But look, I've heard a lot of scouts come out and say that as long as his back clears, he will still be a top five prospect. But that is a big if because... It's a tough injury to deal with, especially the lower back and, you know, a young growing kid who's tall, about 6'10", a bit wiry. I think it'll be tough for him to um, 
to come back from. But um, yeah, it looks hopefully he has a speedy recovery. I'm, I'm hoping he sits out the rest of the year and doesn't take uh, he takes all precautions possible. And um, looking at what it comes to this upcoming draft, there's only a few blue chip top end prospects like him, um, Donkic, Bagley, DeAndre Ayton, Muhammad Bamba, Kevin Knox. That that top six is pretty locked at the moment. And I think that even if his back does play up. You'd hope you'd be still be able to land that top five or six, but anything further, then you'd be really worried about his future in the NBA. Yeah, it does seem that those lower back injuries are always ones that can be concerning because they lead to other injuries throughout the entire body. I mean, you've got a weak lower back because it's carrying an injury. That's when you do a hamstring or you know you pull a calf or roll an ankle. So that core strength, especially for the like you mentioned, the wiry guys like him, is pretty important. So hopefully he makes a full recovery because you wouldn't want to miss out on that that level of a blue chip prospect. So hopefully by the end of the college season we've heard a little bit more about that and he's ready to go for the NBA season and is a top five pick and has a great career. Well, the thing is, what if he what if he slips and goes to the Cavs? Was he is he LeBron's replacement? I mean that would just seem a little bit too much like the Kyrie Irving after LeBron left story. Would wouldn't that just be great for the Cavs again to lose a guy and then straight away replace him with another? High level talent. Yeah, but in knowing the Cavs, they probably got they probably got their uh, medical evaluation wrong, and he's probably done after two seasons. Another Anthony Bennett. Yeah, no, the Cleveland curse is back. <laughs> uh, yeah. So just to finish, wrap up, we wanted to talk about the Boston Celtics win streak finally undone at sixteen wins. We actually talked about this beforehand, and I thought that either Miami or Philly in the next seven games had great chances of knocking them off, and it turned out that. Miami did do that. I kind of thought they were a great chance because they do bring a higher level of intensity on both ends and they're one of the leading driving teams in the game so they really just attack the rim, keep you on your toes all the time. And one of the reasons why we thought that they were one of the danger teams was also because Boston was starting to look a little bit fatigued. I watched that uh, overtime game against the Mavericks and they really looked fatigued, especially early. And it was just some late game heroics from Kyrie that saved it in the end. And yeah, the Heat sort of just really come out early, got on top, and unlike the Mavericks, the Heat have a little bit more talent, so they were able to hold on to that lead. How have you felt about the Celtics during that wing streak? I personally love the level of play they were bringing out. I enjoyed watching it, love watching Kyrie, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, but I do feel like that they had something to play for during that win streak, so they will bring a different level of intensity, and I think now we might start to see some slippage from the level of play that they were at. Yeah, look, 16-game win streak at the start of the season is a perfect start to any season you can ask for, especially the 0-2 start, Gordon Hayward's injury. You've got to give credit to Brad Stevens and Kyrie Irving, where it's due, and Al Horford too, where it's due, especially you know to bring the guys together and going on such a run like that. And um, look, you, it's, it's admirable because they had the best defense in the league um, and you know the 18th-ranked offense, but it's the defense which is the real factor here. Um, in terms of rebounding the ball, the best defensive rebound percentage in the league as well. They've just locked teams down, not given them much, contested a whole bunch of shots, stick to the game plan. Kyrie Irving's leading by example on the defensive end now, which is great. Al Horford, you know, he's doing everything. He's the Swiss Army knife that they've always wanted. I think that the Celtics really showed and made an impression this, during this streak, you know. 16-game winning streak, as I said before, 11 clutch wins in that they did a lot of it on the road as well, and it's yeah, it's admirable coming from a team that's come through so much adversity. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of the Boston defense is you look at the team, and obviously they are a team that is heavily capable of switching. Heap of long guys that can all get out on the perimeter, 
But I think one of the reasons that their defense is actually so strong is because they try to not switch when impossible. So like Kyrie Irving's actually making a real effort to fight through screens this year. Jalen Brown tries really hard to fight through screens. And their primary option isn't a switch, which a team like Houston, that's pretty much the first option to go to. They've got a lot of like-sized guys as well, but their first option is to switch. Whereas with Boston, their first option is to fight through, play it properly, and then if worse comes to worse, that's when they switch, which I think when you play defense that way, it takes longer for teams to get the shot they're looking for. So as opposed to Houston, who might switch straight away, and then a team's got their shot within the first 10 seconds of the offense. Uh, Boston battle really hard, make teams work for 15 seconds, then maybe they switch in the final 5 to 10 seconds of the shot clock, which obviously in that situation, the shot clock's winding down, people always shoot worse there. Yeah, and that really shows the dedication to um, focus and execution with that team, especially in such a pretty decent sample size as well in, that, in their first 18 games where they've done that. And I think that, um, as you said, even when they do switch, you know, you've got guys like Marcus Morris, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, um, Marcus Smart, even Terry Rozier, so who all at least average or above average defenders. Even some of those are elite as well. Like, um, yeah. I think Alan Brown will be up there very soon. Marcus Smart, too, always makes a great play towards the end of the game. When you have, if you have those guys, if you had to switch out, you're like, oh, holy crap. Oh, you know, you've got the 6'7", six, 6'8", six, long Jalen Brown you instead, instead of Marcus Smart. Look, it, this, the defense really locked down, and it's really set a high floor for this team for the rest of the season. Yeah, we won't get into an MVP debate here because you know which side of the fence that I usually lean on in that terms. But Kyrie Irving... Probably didn't play like an MVP early. Al Horford was arguably the most important player for the first you know, 10 or 15 games. But in the clutchless season, like Kyrie Irving's had some couple of massive games and it's really brought this to the forefront, especially in that overtime win against Dallas. And I just thought I'd bring up his clutch numbers this season because they've been absolutely remarkable. And he's been crazy to watch in the clutch. Like When he was playing with LeBron James, down the end of the games, you'd get to see some of these things where he'd go isolation against guys and bring out all the moves, crazy finishes, step-back jumpers, like step-throughs. He's got all the moves. It's just a huge bag of tricks. But this season, when he's the number one guy, they're giving him the ball pretty much every time down the stretch, and it's just been an absolute treasure to watch. So final five minutes this year with the score within five points. Kyrie Irving has played 38 minutes in those situations. He scored 65 points, 29, uh, 24 sorry, of 39 from the field. 13 of 16 from the three-throw line, 11 drawn fouls, 32 of his points have come in the paint. He has 10 assists, and this is a pretty impressive one, I think. Zero turnovers as well. And in those situations, yeah, and in those situations, he's been a plus 40. So, I mean, that's only 38 minutes, but they're pretty much plus 40 in that situation, in clutch situations, which is absolutely massive. And to have a closer like that on your team, I'm sure Boston are pretty excited going forward with some of the young talent they have as well. Look, plus 40 of the clutch is pretty good. That's yeah. no Luke Richard Marmute. It's, it's, mm. it's nothing like Luke. Yeah, no plus 57. <laughs> that, that's got to be the uh, greatest individual game of all time, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> right, and, right and sharpie now. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. We've kind of done well to keep us a lot closer to 40 minutes than we usually do. It's been a good chat. Before we go, do we have anything we want to plug? Uh, I think every week I will I will plug this. And as of right now, the Portland Trailblazers have the second best defense in the NBA. I'm just waiting for the time when that statement is no longer true because that will be much more exciting for me. I'd be much happier. You, you just hear dead silence when you ask me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that happens. 
And from a, I guess, from a work point of view, we I do have that Lonzo ball piece where I broke down some of his shooting issues at the rim, like looked at layups. We also have that breakdown of the um, bucket the clay scored where we did this sort of video breakdown, which was pretty cool. You've got your little interesting stat of the day about your boy Darius Miller, who's one of the best spot-up shooters in the league right now. Interesting thing I noticed about that was how nicely he hopped into his shot. So that's a quick little video and stat that people could look at. I'm also looking to do an article in the next few days. So hopefully we'll get that one out soon and keep your eyes peeled for that one. And yeah, we also have on Monday morning, we're going to do a Q&A, a live stream sort of thing. Uh, generally in regards to a lot of the things that we've raised about this podcast, if, if anyone has any questions in regards to content we've covered, we'd love to answer questions or elaborate on anything we've said. And also, if you have any other questions, we're definitely keen to answer those as well. And just to wrap up, Min's always very active on Twitter. A very good game day tweeter, I think. One of the best I've seen around, so definitely worth the follow at Beyond the Arc BTA. Thanks again, Min, for a great chat, and we'll see you next week. See you later,